Today's scripture is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told them, They do not have any wine. What does that have to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants knew who had drawn the water. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then everyone sets out the fine wine first, and after people are drunk, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and the disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. This is the word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for, as we go into this new year, as we are preparing for uh, the, the things that you have prepared for us, God, I pray that we would have a big vision, a big version of who you are. God, I pray that we would see you, yes, as our Father and as our King, but as our Lord. And so, God, anything old that needs to be replaced or renewed, we pray that you would do that. We pray that the things that are old that need to be done away with, that you would do away with them, that we can fully say in you that we want out with the old and in with the new. You said you've come to make all things new. So, God, will you make the things that need to be refreshed, renewed, or removed, will you do that work through your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're heading into the new year. This is the time that uh, traditionally we love to make New Year's resolutions. This won't be a time of me bashing New Year's resolutions because I think that they can be really, really, really good. Uh, but it's that time of the year that we start to think through. Uh, we, we resolve to do something different, right? There's something that maybe this year we did or things that we've been a part of or things that we've had in our lives that we would love to replace or we would love to, to see uh, be better. There's something different we want this year, this coming year from the one that ha- from this previous year. And so we resolve to make changes, right? So old and unhealthy eating habits, we want a new diet this year, right? Old and uh, unhealthy uh, work habits, we're ready for new ones. Maybe an old job that brought a lot of stress or frustration, we're ready for a new one. Maybe a, a, a relationship that has been stressful and really heartbreaking. We're ready for a new one. Or maybe see it renewed, right? There's something about New Year's. Now, we don't, there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. I would hope that we would start not waiting for 365 days to make resolutions. As believers, as Christians, every single day should be a day that's like, this is a day to make something new. This is a day to see something renewed. If the work of the Holy Spirit is to actively be renewing us, right? transforming us and changing us into his image, we ought not wait for January 1st. Every day should be that for us. So, not knocking it, I'm encouraging, I think, I think it's a really good thing. So to that end, since we're here, 
since we're right here at the cusp of the new year, I wanted to give you a list of the top 10 things that people recommend you change going into the new year. These are going to be really simple, basic. These aren't like life-changing things. Not going to talk about some big spiritual axiom. These are really, really basic things that you can change, that you ought to change in your home. So those of y'all that know me, I'm a real hygiene freak. So these are 10 things that you probably ought to change maybe as soon as you get home. First thing, kitchen sponges. Wait, what? That's right. Kitchen sponges. You can boil them, you can microwave them, you can soak them in bleach, it doesn't matter. There's a study that shows that kitchen sponges continue to harbor disease-causing bacteria despite our best efforts. Experts recommend replacing your sponge every one to two weeks. Mm, that collective gasp, me too. Number two, spices. Old spices, they probably won't hurt you, but they won't make your food taste any better either. Make it a habit to survey your cabinets once a year and get rid of anything that's been in there for way too long. Whole spices can last up to four years, but ground spices and dried herbs should be replaced every one to two years. Number three, damaged pots and pans. <laughs> this is the most I'm gonna get y'all talking back to me today, okay? Get rid of any nonstick pots and pans that are scratched or damaged. If the coating is compromised, it can get into your food and release toxic chemicals during your cooking. <laughs> Listen, I know. Number four, cutting boards. Mm. A well-loved cutting board can also be a haven for bacteria and disease. If your cutting board is full of scratches and grooves, replace it right away. Number five, makeup and makeup tools. Got quiet. Mm. Mm. Every, everyday items like mascara, eyeliner, or concealer can carry bacteria that can cause infection or make skin worse. Replace heavy-use items about every three months. Similarly, makeup sponges, brushes, tools should be cleaned and replaced on a regular basis. Number six, this is one that is near and dear for me. If you know me, you know this is one area I don't play. Toothbrush. <laughs> Re First of all, use one. <laughs> and then replace it every two to three months. Or after a trip, or after an illness. <laughs> Number seven, shower poofs and sponges. The shower poof is like the kitchen sponge of the bathroom, providing the perfect environment for bacteria and mold. Dry out your sponge in between each use and replace it every one to two months. Number eight, sunscreen. Sunscreen loses its effectiveness over time and even faster if it's exposed to high temperatures, like sitting in uh, these warm areas. Sometimes we'll have them in cabinets. Sometimes we'll have them sitting in a beach bag every day over the summer. If you have an unopened tube of sunscreen, it'd be good for up to three years. Otherwise, get a fresh one. Number nine, filters. Filters are there to keep the air, keep our air and water clean, and if they're overloaded, they can't do their jobs. So follow the manufacturer on that one. And finally, pillows. Pillows. Pillows can get nasty and dirty from hours of use each night. The material inside low-quality pillows can also break down fairly quickly, giving your neck and head less support. Experts recommend replacing your pillows every six months. If you have a higher quality or memory foam pillow, you can get away with replacing it every one to two years. Now, why am I reading this? First of all, it's interesting. Very interesting. Hopefully it gives us some things to do, some homework when we get home. 
But even more so, it, it underscores a very, very important point. All these things are very, very good things. And all these things serve very specific purposes. But none of them were meant to work indefinitely. None of these things were meant to just always work the way they've always worked. We can get in a routine, right? There's a thing that I've always done. There's a thing that's always worked this way. And for the time that it served, it was great, but it all has a shelf life. And so these things, if, if we hold on to something that's purpose has expired, we can no longer fully be satisfied. And then we put ourselves at risk. See, sometimes old things need to either be removed or renewed because we need something new to satisfy. Out with the old and in with the new. This is what we find in our gospel. This gospel of John is often called the book of signs because of, of John's desire to convince the readers that Jesus is indeed who they're claiming he is. They're wanting to convince you that Jesus is this one that comes to make everything new. The one that comes to take the old, transform it, and renew it into something new and fully satisfying. And so this story that, we're gonna, that we've just read that we're going to walk through, this very familiar story, the story of the wedding at Cana, this story that Jesus comes on the scene and the first miracle he ever performs happens at this wedding. We've heard the story, we've read the story, we've seen different allusions made to this story, and yet there are things in this story that I think we can easily, easily overlook. There are three ways that Jesus is showing himself to be one that makes things new. He's going to show that Jesus brings new relationship, Jesus brings new religion, and Jesus brings new revelation. New relationship, new religion, and new revelation. One of the best parts of being a pastor for me is the ability to conduct weddings. Now, my favorite part, some of y'all in here know, my favorite part is the premarital counseling. That's my favorite <laughs> <clears throat> I love it because we get to go into real depth, right? I mean, it's, you, you can deal with some really hard things, but necessary things. Because I'm going to tell you, nothing is worse than trying to fix everything post-marriage versus pre-marriage. You're going to have to work on stuff no matter what. But it's good to have some foundational stuff on the front end. So I love the part that, that, that we get to engage when we go into uh, the marriage. And then I get to conduct weddings. And it's always a cheerful time to join two people into this covenant of marriage, this, this picture of who God is to his church and also what it means for people to lovingly engage and commit to one another. But there's a lot of fun, a lot of joy, but I've noticed, I've heard, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of stress. People are doing a lot of planning. There's delicate social dynamics, expectations that one has that maybe somebody else does, or maybe you have expectations that might be impossible to meet. Then, after that, you've got the reception that comes with its own challenges. Now, thankfully, the minister has nothing to do with the reception, so I just show up and eat. If you're stressed, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I try to be more empathetic than that, but still. The, 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 when you come to a wedding, there's a lot of things that are there. There's joy and there's tension. There's things that I want to be able to have. A lot of times, folks who are planning it, there's a, there's a memory that I want to create. and There's something that I want to feel, and there's something I want other people to feel in the moment. So as an aside, really quickly, and I say this to everybody with whom I do premarital counseling, please ensure, if you ever plan on getting married, that you commit to putting more in your marriage than in your wedding. Please commit to putting more, you know, for a lot of people, they will spend more money and more resources and more energy on the wedding day than they will their marriage. And that stuff always comes back. 
So with that, with that, when you look at this picture that Jesus shows up at, he shows up at this wedding, this wedding 2,000 years ago, but in many ways, very similar. Joyful, lots of excitement, lots of expectations, lots of stress, lots of anxiety. And this wedding had the very presence of the Son of God. So much like today, back then, creating a wedding list, that would have been hard. You had to figure out, who do I invite? That can be really hard, right? Who do I invite? Who do I not invite? What do I say when people ask, why did I get an invitation? Do I invite the same amount of people from the wedding to the reception? Are people going to feel offended if they don't get... You know, all those things come up. You have to think through all of that. And it's sad because it's your day, right? But you still have to figure out a way to care for the feelings of everybody else. So it can be stressful, and it was very stressful back then. Somehow, for some reason, Jesus and his mother and these disciples that he has as well, they're invited. They show up. Now, some people wonder if maybe Jesus and his mom knew the bridegroom. Uh, There's some evidence that possibly they would have known them. We don't know how close, but for whatever reason, they were invited to this wedding. And so they show up at this wedding, and you see this. When you, when you notice, this is, just after, uh, this is just after Jesus has had this conversation with Nathaniel, right? At the end of chapter 1, we see that he's had this time of convincing these disciples of who he is, shows them who he is, and they have to respond. And they respond not just by being impressed by him, but they respond by following him. And then as soon as they uh, begin to follow him, you see this, after Nathaniel starts to follow Jesus, uh, uh, the, the next move is they go to this wedding. You look at verse 1 of chapter 2 on the third day. A wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. So here they are. They're at this wedding. Now, here's what we got to know. We need some context here. Because when you look at this text, you're noticing that this wedding is there, but they've got a problem. And the problem is they just run out of wine. Now, why? Here's, Here's a bigger question. Out of all the ways for Jesus, out of all the, the, possible, the possibilities of doing a miracle, why would the first miracle have to do with some drink? <laughs> Forgive the colloquialism, but still. Why, 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 out of all the things, couldn't, I mean, you would think the first miracle would be something that's like, and he raised this person from the dead, or he healed this person of a sickness. But no, the first thing is him making sure that he provides uh, uh, victuals, as they say. He, he, he provides uh, alcohol. He provides drink for this party, for this wedding. Number one, why was that the miracle? And number two, why is that even considered a miracle? That's a big question. Why would that be considered the miracle? Out of all the things he could have done, what's so miraculous about it? Here's why I have to ask that. How is a miracle any different from a magic trick? How is a miracle any different from a magic trick? You see, in this case, it's important because if you think about a magic trick, what's so great about a magic trick? What's great about a magic trick is uh, it's defined by the enormity of the act. If you're going to do magic, it's, the whole point of it is wow me with something. Somehow create something that, that seems to be impossible. And if, if you somehow are able to accomplish that, then I am wowed and I'm enamored because you've done something right, that I did not think was possible. You've, the, the enormity of the act is so great that you get props, you're good at magic. How is that different from a miracle? 
The difference between a miracle and magic is uh, magic tricks, they're defined by the enormity of the act, but a miracle isn't defined by the enormity of the act. It's defined by the impact on the recipient. You see, you can do magic all day, and it's like, okay, that was cool, and I keep on and I go about my day. Doesn't really have a real impact on me other than, gee whiz, that guy's got some tricks. It's, it's, it's something else when the act that's done has this very uh, empirical impact on me. Specifically when the act that's done meets a desperate need that I have. That's what makes it a miracle. So, so again, how is just making wine, how is that miraculous? It's incredible and it's seemingly impossible, but what makes it miraculous? There has to be a great need that's being met here for this to be a miracle. Otherwise, how is this any different from uh, the, the two magicians that were just uh, uh, trying to recreate the things that Moses was able to do back uh, during the time of the Exodus? And while they couldn't do it perfectly, they still were doing some pretty interesting things, right? So, so there's got to be more to this than just, gee whiz, water into wine. That's amazing. What a miracle. There has to be something else. So, so we need context here. We need to understand something about weddings. Number one, the wedding feast back during that time lasted about a week. So it would be, I mean, that would be incredible, right? Just partying all week. And there would be different guests brought in all the time. Different guests would show up throughout the week. And so you would have, I mean, it was, it was incumbent upon the groom. The groom was the one that was responsible for providing all of the resources necessary in order to put on an incredible uh, party. He had to pay for the food, pay for the servants, pay for the wine, pay for the entertainment. Everything was the groom. Grooms, y'all ready? Mm -hmm. I saw one hand. Wow. That's brave. <laughs> so you have this situation where this wedding is there. The groom was responsible for all the provisions. You think your wedding is stressful now, but just imagine how stressful it had to be back then. One uh, commentator uh, put it this way. Running out of wine was something like a slur on the host because they had not fully discharged the duties of hospitality. It rendered the groom's family liable to lawsuit. They were legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. Some of y'all are like, I know some people I can sue right now. I've been to some whack receptions. So the pressure that you would have if the party doesn't go right specifically the social shame that you would have if the wine runs out. <clears throat> See, back then, it, it meant something for you to be very hospitable. It meant something for you to be able to be a good host. It meant something if you were putting on a party to really put on a party. And yet, this situation, we, we, find, we find ourselves, Jesus finds himself at this place where this party has been thrown, and at some point during the feast, all of the wine has run out. That's the context. And so we find that we're going to see something here. You're going to see just how, uh, what happens when Jesus comes on the scene and how it changes the nature of his relationships, which should change ours, how it changes the nature of religion as we understand it, and how it changes the way, if you really think about it, how it changes uh, the way that we kind of function and the way we look for God to reveal himself. So when you really look at this, there's, there's another question we have to think about. Uh, Jesus shows up at this wedding. Now, I think this is something that's really, really interesting. Because in typical good church folk circles, if 
If somebody were to come on the scene and go, hey, we're going to this wedding, and somebody comes to you and says, we got a problem, we ran out of wine. Good, real good church folk love to like get real sanctimonious and love to be like, well, we don't need wine to have a good time. We got Jesus. Because <laughs> it's real good to feel holy about yourself. It's real good to make, make yourself feel like, I don't need all of that, right? Or you might say something like, you know, I don't really concern myself with such silly, frivolous things. I'm just about the kingdom. I'm just about God's work right now. And so maybe your maturity level would be better if you didn't worry so much about these kinds of things. I know that you like partying and everything, but listen, Jesus is coming soon, and I don't really want to be found. I don't want him to see me drinking some wine. I don't want to see him with some Merlot in my hand. I want him to see the crucifix on my... This is how we think when we try to get real holy and holier than thou. And yet Jesus shows up to a wedding. Jesus, God in the flesh, shows up to something that we might look at as minuscule in importance. Something that we'd see is just frivolous. Something that we would see is just a waste of time. And yet Jesus says, I'm here because this actually matters. Not only am I here to be here for the wedding, but I'm here for the reception. And for whatever reason, this is where we get to the new relationship. Look at how Mary uh, talks to him when he gets there. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Okay, we got to ask a question. Why is she talking to Jesus about this? Why, why would she even bring this to him? He's a guest. Why would she even think? She, now clearly, let's talk about Mary's. Mary clearly is able to read the room. Mary is really wise. She comes in, she can read the room. She sees, oh no, there's going to be some shame out here real fast because the wine is, is out. People are going to get frustrated, they're going to get angry. Who knows the things they might say? And we know the, the groom's family and what kind of shame are they going to bring on? Jesus, we have a problem. What made her? What in Je- Jesus, 33. What in his 33 years did he show her that made her go, you can come to me with this problem? Because we don't see anything, right? We clearly, I mean, there had to be things Jesus did throughout his life. We don't have, we don't see. Uh, the scripture said he did so many things that there's not even enough books to, to contain them. So, we don't know whatever he did before this time, but clearly something, Mary knew enough to be able to bring that problem to him. Further, even if he had done nothing else, if he had done nothing up to this point, something had to make her know in, in her heart of hearts that she could bring this concern to him. Why would she think he would do anything about this? Well, this is where I get to pick on a song that I normally pick on on Christmas time, and I didn't last week, but I will now. If you believe this idea that Mary was just this uber-innocent, ignorant, little peasant teenage girl without a clue of what was happening because of the good old song, Mary, Did You Know? (laughs) We forget that the angels very well told her exactly who this was in her womb. She did indeed know. Now, the specifics she didn't know. Did she know he would walk on water? No, the angel didn't tell him that exactly. But she knew that she, how do we know that? Because number one, the way she responded, when you read Mary's song, when you look at the ways that she is overwhelmed to be giving birth to her Lord, as a matter of fact, her cousin Elizabeth, when she goes to her and tells her what the angel told her, Elizabeth said, it's amazing that I'm looking at the mother of my Lord. So Mary knew something. She may not have known specifically everything that he would do, but she knew that there was something about this boy, this man that was capable of doing the impossible. She knew that. 
So because she knew that, she could go to Jesus and say, we have a problem, and it's a problem that I know you're the only one who can solve. I know that you're the only one that can solve this. So she brings it to him. Here she is, bringing this petition, this request. And then with all of that, look at how Jesus responds. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Our culture influences how we read this passage. So let me read it how our culture would read it. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? That's how we read it. Because that woman gets real heavy. Because in our culture, those kind of abrupt responses are a sign of a lack of affection and a lack of respect, right? So we do that. You'll see, kind of, you'll see preachers do this and be like, you know, because that's, just, that's the way that Jesus is showing who he really is. That's the way that Jesus is showing her, you might be my mama, but not no more, because now you're just a woman to me because I'm God in the flesh. And you'll hear that preached over and over and over again. The problem is that this is not at all what this connotes. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is indeed, we're going to see it in a minute, he is showing that the nature of our relationship is changing. The nature of our relationship is, is changing, and it's important for you to know the nature of our new relationship. But this word is not one that you look to to go, and here's the proof. He called her woman. Here's how we know this. First, even though you might think that this is rude and less than reverent, you see this kind of word used by Jesus in, in several other places. Now, let me tell you, you if, if you think that's the case, folks like to do this too when they go, you know, sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta talk to you. I trust me, I've seen this. You gotta be able to tell your parents, I'm a grown person too. And so you, you, so you think, because you think you saw an example in Jesus, you real tough now. You got a lot more bass in your voice. And you walk up and you, I dare, I, would, I don't even hope, I wish somebody would just go to your mom and be like, listen, woman, you're going to get a quick, swift retort. Let me tell you that. Because that's not the point of this, right? That's not even where they're going. And how do we know that? How do I know this? Because if you go back in about, I see 17 chapters down in John 19, you're going to see Jesus dying on a cross. And he looks down at his mother and he realizes, I'm not going to be here in the flesh for you anymore, but you need to have somebody taking care of you. So who does he look to? He looks to the disciple that Jesus loved, John. And John is standing there next to him. And he says, woman, this is your son. Behold, woman, your son. Is he being disrespectful there? See, that's why scripture needs to interpret scripture. We've got to be really careful not to just impose our cultural milieu on the text and then create new things. Because that's not what it is. He's, matter of fact, what most commentators tell us is that that idea, that word for woman, is a word that really was the, the way we would say madam or man. It's something that kind of shows there's actual a, a degree of respect and reverence there. But, so, so the response that Jesus gives, the way he turns the relationship, is not in the woman part. It is in the, what does this have to do with me and you? It is in the, what does this have to do with me? When he says this, there's something really, really interesting here. Because you're noticing the way that he, the way that he talks, the wording that he used here. Some people actually think that when Mary, by the way, I just have to throw this out there. Some people think that when Mary made this request to Jesus, that was the first example of Mary interceding. And so people took that passage to prove that Mary then intercedes for us. 
It's, it is very much a, a, a teaching that's actually been around for a long, long time. And so folks have actually used that to go, see, Mary was the one, who, her intercession is what prompted Jesus to act. And so because that intercession prompted Jesus to act, we pray to her to intercede for us to prompt Jesus to act. But that's actually not biblically what's happened here at all. If that were the case, then Jesus' response would not be what it is. You see, if it were the case that her, she sits and she intercedes on our behalf and, and with all the you know, fullness and glory and all that stuff, then Jesus would have no reason to respond with a rebuke. But he does. It's important that we get this. Because when he says, what does this have to do with me? That phrase shows up in two different gospel accounts, by the way. We see that phrase used in Mark and Luke in the same story where there's a man who's possessed with a lot of demons known as legion. And when he shows up on the scene, the demons are like really, really worried. And they're begging him, please don't send us all the way yet. Right, because there's this idea that like, the demons knew this wasn't the time. This wasn't the time for your fullness to be revealed. It's not the time for us to meet the ultimate demise that we're going to. So they're asking, they look at him and they say the phrase, what does this have to do with me? See, that phrase was often used when there's a, a disagreement or a concern or a rebuke like, you can't do this yet. It's not time yet. Don't make me do this yet. So if, 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 if Mary was the one that is the one that actually acted and interceded and made Jesus move, so you got to stretch things far to create new doctrine. you got to stretch things. you got to fill in blanks to create new doctrine. This happens to be a, a doctrine that's been around for a really, really long time. And this is not to say that Mary isn't important. It's just that she and Jesus is going to show her this. Mary moves from the role of mother of Jesus to disciple of Jesus. That's what she was. That's what we are. To elevate her or anyone else above that is to go beyond what the scriptures say. And so now you've got uh, Jesus in this. By the way, that's the reason why also that same teaching within that church uh, teaches that Mary was co-redemptor with Christ. It's actually the teaching. Because Mary shows herself to be the, inter the intercessor for us, then anything that Jesus does, he only does because he's doing it at the urging of Mary, which means she is co-redeemer. Do you see how dangerous that kind of thing is? It's important to let the text talk. And so here we see Jesus is actually rebuking in two ways. First, what does this have to do with me? In other words, he, he explains later, my hour has not yet come. You, in order for me to do this incredible thing, some of my glory is getting ready to be on display. And my final hour that's going to reveal my glory, by the way, that, script, that verse is used throughout the scriptures. And it's always talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's always talking about this gruesome, horrible death that's coming and the resurrection. You see it used seven times in the book of John, and every time it's talking about death on the cross. You see, this phrase is used as a form of rebuke to Mary. Why? Because he's truly cha challenging and changing the nature of their relationship. Remember, he reminded her before of this when he was 12. Joseph and, and Mary were looking for him, and he was teaching in the temple, and they finally go and see him teaching from Isaiah 53. And when they get there, uh, they're like, where, where have you been? And he's like, if, if you knew me and you understood, you should have known I would be about my father's business. He's already kind of hinted at that. And so now this isn't anything new. He's still rebuking, lovingly rebuking and saying, no, you have to understand that there's, there's something else here. 
You have to see me as something else. He's changing the nature of the relationship. You see, when Jesus is present, he either removes or renews relationships. When Jesus is present, he either removes or renews relationships. And to renew something is to actually take something that's there, fix, beatify, perfect, and make it something new. That's what any time Jesus is in relationship with you, then this is what should start happening to your relationships. Either something is removed or renewed. And so this is what he's kind of showing his mom. He's showing her that our relationship is transforming. He transformed his relationship with his mother. Why? Up until this point, Mary had a very special privilege as the mother of Jesus, like any mother would have. He had a very special privilege in being, she had a very special privilege in being his mother. But now she had to learn how to function as a disciple. And you see this process unfold throughout the gospel. You're going to see times when Mary's going to feel rejected. Mary's going to watch Jesus die. She's going to realize that she too would have to kneel at the cross of her king. This meant she had to let go of some of the old privileges of a mother. But at the same time, accepting a new relationship that brought something greater and brought something deeper. So here's what this means. As a mother, Mary's title never changed, right? Her title never changed. She still was the mother of Jesus. It didn't mean that she stopped being a mother. Only the nature of the relationship changed. Why? Because the old relationship is being transformed into something new. That old relationship is being transformed and renewed into something new. And this is how we know that she was transformed and ever being transformed. Because look at how she responds in verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. That exchange is really important. Because you could look at it as just, she's just letting Jesus say whatever he needs to say so that he can finally do what she wants him to do. Because that, that could easily be looked, you could overlook that exchange and think, all right, whatever, Jesus, you're talking all that God stuff. Right now, make, make some wine. But actually, what you're seeing is that the first, the first directive you see Mary ever give is obey Jesus. Obey Jesus. It's not even a, listen, if you need anything, ask me. I'll get him to do it. It's y'all need to do whatever he tells you to do. There, there's something about when, when, when real relationships transform, when a relationship with Jesus begins to transform you, then it becomes always about his agenda and not yours. Yes. Anytime that begins to transform, you start realizing there's a lot of things that I think that I want, but I now will submit my agenda to his. And so this is, where, this is where Mary is. She responds with do whatever he tells you. Her counsel is to obey Jesus. Jesus made a point to rebuke his mother because he knew the intent of her heart. But she doesn't argue because the transformation of this relationship from a mother to son to a Lord and disciple, that's happening. See, when a relationship with Jesus as Lord is most important, it transforms all of our earthly relationships into something new. It's this inner transformation that helps us to see how our relationships uh, should, be, should move from asking questions like this, what can this person do for me? And instead ask, how does this relationship bring real glory to God? That's what happens. It's a hard question. 
It's a really hard question because there's nothing wrong when you're engaging in relationships, any kind of relationship, to ask the question, hey, what will it mean? What would being with them uh, mean for me? What would friendship or relationships with this person mean for me? But that can't be the ultimate question. The ultimate question has to be, how does this relationship, this friendship, family, romantic, whatever, how does this bring glory to God? See, that's what, that's what changes when that inner transformation hits. This is the kind of transformation that enables us in relationships to get off of our phones and get into each other's lives. This is the kind of relationship that empowers us to say, I'm sorry, and I'm going to look to affirm the good in the other person. You see, when those things don't happen, there really hasn't been the inner transformation that we claim that's there. Whenever we get into conflict, we see this a lot. When you, when you get into conflict with people, listen, we all are going to have conflict. It's going to happen. And here's what we're all going to struggle with. We're going to struggle with pride. If you feel like you've been wronged by someone, you know what you're going to struggle with? Trying to affirm the good in the other person. And that's actually going to show that there's not real repentance on either side when there's not an affirm- affirmation of the good in another person. Even if they've d- done you, okay, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to, overlook or, or candy coat the wrong that's been done, but you will not have the right heart posture to be able to engage reconciliation if you cannot or you will not affirm the good in another person. So here's the thing. If real inner transformation hasn't happened or isn't happening, then yeah, you'll be closed off to it. If it's happening, it still may be hard and you still may go, I don't like doing this, but you will submit to the fact that it needs to happen. This is what real transformation looks like, the old. Because look, we all have our old self. And we all battle our old self. My default position, the way I'm prone to act when I'm wronged, or the way I'm prone to act when I'm scared, or the way I'm prone to act when I'm hurt. That, and we, also, we often feel like that those default positions are acceptable positions because they naturally occur. So we'll say things. I've said this before. We'll say things like, well, this is just how I feel. You can't blame me for feeling what I feel. This is just what I think. You can't blame me for thinking what I think. That's not biblical. Because your old self and the way you think is going to be rooted in your sin nature. So how, why, who told, we said this before, who told you that your best authentic self is your most authoritative self? Who told you that authenticity was an authority in anything? It's not. The only way that we actually show ourselves to be transformed is when we are authentically looking like Jesus, not our best self. So you see Mary seeing that transformation, and you see other folks as we go through John seeing that transformation. How you're prone to react, how you naturally feel about a thing, what you naturally think about a thing, it really doesn't matter if it's not in line with what Jesus feels and thinks. So what real humility looks like is, okay, that is what I naturally thought. Now I need to figure out if what I thought is the way that God thinks. Because the way that I think really shouldn't be my ultimate authority. And if it is my ultimate authority, then I am my own God. Then we see in verses 5 through 10, Jesus kind of showing us new religion. Now this gets really interesting because typically, this is always a fun passage because we love to look at this. Some of us love to look at this to show Jesus knows how to party. Yay. Because this is a real party. This is a real time, right? But, but what we're seeing is that uh, beyond the ways that Jesus transforms our relationship, I'm going to tell you that this passage shows that Jesus, the very presence of Jesus renews and refines and redefines our sense of wholeness. 
Our sense of what it means to be whole, to be in perfect relationship with God, what it means to be holy. And so this is what I want. I want us to do some work here to look through this, right? Because she says to, uh, Mary says to, uh, to, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So now he says the scene. And I think it's really important. We talked about this last week. Whenever the authors of the gospel, any of these gospels, give specific details, they matter. They matter, right? It's not just a throw-in. So, so look at these details. Pay, always pay attention to the details when you're reading scripture. Always. When there's numbers, days, hours, those kinds of things, pay close attention. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So we already know, we see Jesus has decided, right, to meet this need of the wedding feast, and there's wine that needs to be done. So, so, so what does he do? How does he do it? You've got these six stone jars, these stone jars. Now, uh, what most uh, 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 scholars say is those, you would make it out of stone because the idea was that impurities would not be transmitted through stone. So that's why they wouldn't be held in just clay pots. They would be held in stone uh, these stone kind of uh, uh, major holding pots. And it's interesting. I've actually been to Cana. I got a chance to go to Israel several years ago and go to the place where they believe the wedding actually happened. And, you know, they try to monetize everything. So they're like, this is the place where the wine was made. And this is, you see that graffiti Jesus was here? Like, you see people really <laughs> trying to make money off of it. Don't buy into any of that if you go. But Cana, it's incredible because you can, you can almost picture the scene. You can picture, like, the procession, and you can picture the party that's going on in the open-air environment. You, you can really get a feel for what it must have been like. And, and, and you see, they would show us, I remember at one place, they showed us this big stone kind of holding pot. And they were like, this is the type of pot that they would have for purification and washing, ceremonial washing when people would come to a home or people would go into a place. You would make sure that you washed your hands and you would wash your feet. Why? Because you were walking with a bunch of open-toed sandals and you were walking along dirt and clay roads. And so your feet would be really, really dirty. And so there was this idea that in order for us to be holy, it's not just hygiene purposes, but in order for us to be holy, we've got to go overboard and make sure that we keep washing and cleaning ourselves and cleaning ourselves. Why? Because religion there was, let me do everything I can to clean myself so that I can ascend to where God is. The idea is, if I do what I have to do to clean up myself, then I will be accepted by God. That's, that's what dead religion looks like, right? I do what I have to do to earn his favor. And then once I've earned his favor, then I'll be accepted. Now, this is important because in many ways, we can function like this. If things aren't working right in some ways, our first go-to is, well, what have you done to displease God? Right? Because, because the, the, the axiom by which we live is, if I do good, then God will do good to me. If, I do, if, I, if, I, if I'm completely clean, then and only then, Will he bring blessings my way? And that's taught that way often. And it's scary. This isn't to say go live out and go crazy, but the point is that in many ways, if you think that, it will be a very joyless religion. There's no joy in it. Because oh, I don't know about you, but it's, it's too hard to keep up with all the ways you ain't clean. It's too hard to keep up with. Because here's the thing, there's a lot of times where you're functioning, you don't even know that what you're doing is not clean. 
Sometimes when you're walking with Jesus long enough, you get to a place, you go, oh my goodness, I didn't even know this was here. I have been in sin in this area of my heart. I didn't even realize that. I've been unclean all this time. So if, so if you think that God is just waiting and hoping, can they just get themselves, uh, I hope they can get to this point, then I can go meet them. See, that's not what scripture shows us. But that was the way that folks would function. They functioned in this form of dead religion. And so they would go, they would, they would go through, and you would have to constantly, I mean, it was a constant thing of washing and washing and washing and washing and ensuring that I got to be clean, I got to be clean, I got to be clean. You've got six stone jars there, there for ceremonial washing. The, the folks would come and wash their hands and cooking utensils. And again, they weren't just to take care of dirt. They knew that God demanded them to be pure. And they thought that if, as long as I can wash the outside, then maybe eventually the inside will be clean. Y'all, we, we function like this a lot. If I can just show some degree of ceremonial cleansing outside, if people can see me looking like that I'm clean, even if the inside is so messed up, I'd, I'd rather you think I'm clean than me actually be clean. I'd rather give you the picture of cleanliness than truly being pure on the inside. And I'd rather you think I'm clean. Here's what's going to happen. The moment I'm focused on making you think I'm clean, I will never let you get close enough to know just how unclean I really am. This is the struggle. Because there's this idea of like, well, because if I already think that being unclean is what keeps God away, then I know that me being clean, will, being unclean will likely keep you away. So it's my job now to stress over convincing you that I have my stuff together. So you've got this unspoken belief that through proper observance of this ritual of cleaning the outside, that we'll be clean on the inside, that we can be whole before a holy God. Now, why does wine then? Why, why would John use wine as this symbol? Well, wine is a symbol of joy in the Bible. Good gifts from God that are meant to be received gratefully and used responsibly. How do we know that? Psalm 104, 15, God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. Simeon are like, yes, I knew it. (laughs) And here's why it's hard, because there are people who get so frustrated, number one, that Jesus will come on the scene making wine. Because there are folks, teetotalers, especially during the Prohibition era, people would use this. Why? Because they do what typical, when you're religious-minded and thinking, do a thing to get a favor from God, you think, it's the things themselves that make me bad, so if I can stop the things from happening, then I won't be bad. But that's not what this is. See, ultimately, what you're seeing is, there's no question, we see throughout the scriptures, abusing anything is sin. Abusing alcohol is sin. Hear me say that. Abusing alcohol is sin. Abusing alcohol grieves the heart of God. He created us to be in his image. And if you're in God's image, you should never be out of control of your faculties, especially voluntarily so. So it's not cool. And listen, this is the one area that nowadays, because we've gotten away from the uber, uber kind of teetotaler stuff and people are like, no alcohol. Okay, we may have gotten past that. But now we, the pendulum swings the other way. And so it's interesting how you can, there are a lot of sins that you can never joke about. But for whatever reason, we'll have no problem getting on social media and, and joking about being drunk. But that's sin. It's not even like a gray area. It's, it's just sin. So, so, so please hear this. This isn't like a, 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 an excuse 
to go get turned today. By turn, I mean uh, excessively inebriated. So, so, so this isn't an excuse to go get that tie-dye, right? But what, but what this is, is, is you're seeing that Jesus, first of all, Jesus absolutely cares about the things in which we find joy. He cares about the things that actually help relieve stress. We talked about this when, when we went through the Proverbs 31 leader, right? We talked about what a Proverbs 31 leader does, right? The, the, the first nine verses of Proverbs that like nobody ever reads, because we always jump to Stepford Wife Christianity for women. So we jump into Proverbs 31, we miss the whole boat. It's not even addressed to a woman, it's addressed to a man, but anyway. So when you look at the first nine verses, what does it say? It starts walking through all the things that a Proverbs 31 leader, that the kind of leader God requires, and he says, give wine to those that are suffering so they can remember their pain no more. See, ultimately there's something about being a leader, a godly person that seeks to alleviate the suffering of those in your care. So it shouldn't be a shock here that Jesus would show up because you see, wine is this symbol of great joy. Yes, it does loosen the mood and it allows people to just be relaxed and be able to enjoy one another. And there is abs- Now listen, there's wisdom here. There are folks that have had addiction issues. That's the reason why you got to be really careful when you do these kind of things. It's one of the reasons why we choose, if we're hosting an event, we won't provide those things because we don't know where people's hangups are. And I don't want to get involved. It's not anything saying it's sinful to do it or anything like that. We just, we've had people that have had significant addiction issues. So you got to be wise about that too. But here, when Jesus shows up and does this, people had a real hard time. They're like, oh, I don't like this. Is Jesus doing wine stuff? He's doing alcohol stuff. I know. I know what we can do. Let's tell people that when this alcohol, this kind of wine was just unfermented juice. Let's tell them that. Because then we don't have to like deal with this hard, hard tension because we always say that alcohol is like the devil's water and, and it's going to make it do. So, so let's just tell people, hey, don't think that this is like alcohol, alcohol. This is just like some grape juice that hasn't turned yet. Now, this text is going to prove that that can't be true either. But this is, again, when you're focused on, look, y'all know, you know what we do. This is what the Jews did. This is what we do. Right? Those in the Jewish faith would do this too. You're so worried about being sinful that you create a bunch of fences. Fence here, then another fence here, then another fence there. Because hopefully if I can just put enough fences up, that'll keep me whole. If I can just create enough boundaries, please hear me. This is not about individual wisdom decisions, okay? It's not. You, have, you know yourself. I have family, people in my family have huge addictive personalities. So you have to be wise for yourself to know it's not wise for me. Here's where religiosity comes in. I now hold you to the same standard that I hold myself to. And then I judge you because you don't have the same standard that I have. See, that's how idolatry looks. And that's how dead religion looks. And then you feel really good about yourself because you've kept the standard that you have set for yourself. And now you're looking at these other people going, they ain't got it, they ain't got it, they ain't got it. And then you wonder why your relationships, why people don't really want to come to you. People don't want to have real relationship with you, and you start feeling really lonely. You might not admit it, but you feel it. Jesus is coming to kill that religion and bring a new one. And so when you look at this symbol that he gives, and you see that uh, uh, this, this picture that he comes on the scene and says, I'm going to bring uh, this new, I'm going to bring this new wine. I'm going to choose to do it, and I'm going to uh, bring real joy to the wedding. Y'all listen, there's a huge picture in this. If you think about this wedding, you realize that throughout the scriptures, Paul tells us later that uh, wedding uh, marriages, while it looks like it's a mystery, here's what the mystery really is, right? 
The mystery of, of marriage is that, that it's about Jesus and the church. So if a marriage, if a marriage is supposed to picture the relationship of Jesus with his bride, the church, then there's this picture of this beautiful, joyous occasion that's supposed to be on display. So if that's the case, why is he? I think it's very intentional. Of course it's intentional that a wedding would be the first place. This is the picture of what Christ does with us. So here's the thing. If weddings, if marriage is a picture of our relationship with God, is a picture of what real religion should look like, real relationship should look like, if that's the way it's supposed to look, then we're left thinking this way. Many times you could either have a wedding where you've got the wine with no Jesus or you got Jesus and no wine. You're stuck. See, you can have a wedding, right? You can have a ceremony where you've got the wine and you're like, hey, we got the part. So this is what that looks like. That's my spiritual life where it's like, I want to feel good. I want to enjoy myself. I want to have a good time. I don't want to be made to feel guilty. I don't want anybody to have to tell me about myself. I just want to enjoy me, do me, live life for the fullest. Me, my best self in 2020 hashtag. I don't want anything else to come in and interfere with what I've determined is my best self. I want the wedding. I want the wine. I don't want Jesus. Or I'm the super holy one. And I'm like, I... I'm going to trust Jesus, and I love Jesus, and he is my all in all. But don't be bringing all that fun and wine and all that stuff over there, because that's the craziness. I, I've created a bunch of boundaries for myself. I don't know why I'm talking like that, but that's what it is. I've created these boundaries for myself that, that's going to keep me from being like all y'all weird, lascivious folks that's out there having a good time, because you don't realize that your fun is going to turn into dropping off into the devil's waterfall. <laughs> That, that's how people treat their walks. That's how people treat religion. And so here's the problem. If you're the first and you're the person that's like, I want to be able to have what I want, and I might invite Jesus in at times, but I want to be able to determine what's good for me, here's the problem. The same problem that happened here, that wine is going to run out. That wine will, that wine will not satisfy you. You're going to run out and go, man, I thought this was good and I was having a good time, but now it's not, that's not enough. Now I need something else. That's what the spirit of addiction looks like. I thought this would fill this. I thought this would fulfill this. I thought that this relationship would do it for me, and it's not, and I need something else. Because I got all this wine, but I have no Jesus. There's no sense of holiness. There's no sense of real relationship with him. You see, the thing is, wine or the party or the fun is a horrible bedfellow without Jesus. It's a horrible spouse. It's a horrible relationship to have if you don't have Jesus. I think the other picture that you see is the number of the jars. Because again, the jars are, are representing what we thought was ceremonial cleansing, right? The jars represent what it means to have a relationship with God and to be holy and to be righteous and to be whole, right? And for whatever reason, he determines to include the number of the pots. Now, a lot of theories behind this. Can't say this for sure, but I'm saying, I think it's interesting that when you look throughout the scripture, one of the numbers that always shows God in his completion is a number seven. But here you've got six pots showing that outside of Jesus, your best ceremonial efforts at getting close to God will always pale in comparison to who he is. It'll never get you there. 
it'll never get you there. The things you're holding to, to to make sure you've got it right with God, outside of Jesus and who he is, the joy and the holiness of who Jesus is, it will never get you there. You will never be as close to God as you think that you are. It's interesting, too, that when John looks at this as as a miracle, and that for those who still go, well, you know, it can't, can't be wine because it's sinful. There's one a commentator to put it this way. Old theologian J.C. Riley said, if our Lord Jesus worked a miracle to supply wine at a marriage feast, it's impossible to see wine as sinful. This was a picture of what it truly meant for Jesus to say, in your best efforts at being close to me, in your best efforts at being close to God, you will never have true joy if I'm not there. You will never have true, sustaining joy if I am not there. This is why you see this picture. I think it's interesting. You see in earlier in, in John 1.17 when he says grace and truth come from Jesus Christ. You're seeing both of that here. The grace that he gives us to enjoy life and to be able to enjoy each other and to be able to celebrate the good things that he's done and celebrate his creation. Right? Wine is something that comes from the earth, and we get to celebrate his creation, and we do that together. So we do that in grace, but we also don't abuse it because we have truth. And Jesus comes on the scene to show both. Religion without joy, religion without holiness, is a wedding with no wine. And so when you, when you, when you see that, you kind of see this last position Uh, You see this new revelation. I'm going to say this really quickly because this is really interesting. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. You see this, and actually the verse before, Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples believed. Now, there's a, a quick interesting point in here that you see just in the fact that Jesus, um, not only did he go, but his mother and his brothers went. Because again, there's this belief that, and it's important, I'm not trying to pick on, but it's important that we understand what we believe and why we believe it. So understand, there's another very popular teaching that says not only was Mary co-redemptor with Jesus, and not only was Mary at some level a step above the others, but also that Mary was a perpetual virgin, that she never had her holiness and her godliness, and to some degree is rooted in the fact that she was a virgin all of her days, but yet the scriptures say that Jesus had brothers. I'm pretty sure she just wasn't immaculately conceiving these kids left and right. That would be an incredible story. But it's important, right? And actually, I think it's important that we see, uh, it's so important that we don't try to other people in the scriptures, but see them as human. Because outside of, there's only one person that was a God and man, it's Jesus, that's it. No one else deserves any other glory even close to that. So, so it's important that we respond and we respect the incredible. I mean, the, the scripture says that all nations will call her blessed, and we should, because it's incre- she helped bring forth the Savior of the world. But she also was a normal human being with, this, with sin struggles and issues and questions. We see her questioning things and doubting. It's important. It actually makes her more relatable. Makes her to be able to go, man, I, I can see myself in Mary here. I can see myself in this person, in Paul, and Peter, and John. I can see myself there. See, the interesting thing is, and I think it's interesting how God does this, everybody else in Scripture, you can see yourself in them. You can only see yourself in Jesus when he makes you like him. That's it. You can't just look at Jesus and go, I can relate. No, you cannot. (laughs) 
But when he begins to, to change and transform, then and only then do we get to see things with the eyes of Christ. We start to feel things with Christ's heart. We get to hear things with the ears of Christ. And as a result of all the things that he's just done here, these disciples that just days before just got invited on this trip, they, just, they don't really know what's going on exactly. They just know, he, okay, this dude told me some stuff about myself that nobody else could. He's on some Miss Cleo stuff. I don't really know what that, that's a dated reference. I don't know if some of y'all are going to get that. <laughs> I, he's on some stuff. He knows some things about me. I don't really know how, but he, but he does. I, I'm going to follow him. Then they get to this wedding. And when they see, because they, I think they understood some of the spiritual things that were happening here. Because they see the wine. I think it's interesting too, by the way, real quick. It's interesting that as soon as Jesus makes the wine, we don't know exactly when it happened, right? Because when you read how the text reads, it says that um, Jesus says, fill the jars with water. Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine. So at some point, it became wine either while it was in the pots or as it was being drawn out of the pot. Because by the time it got to his lips, it was wine. We don't know exactly what, but listen to how he responds, which again is going to prove just how much Jesus cares about the joy aspect of our lives. It says, now, when the headwater tasted the water after it had become wine, he didn't know where it came from, though he knew the servants had drawn the water. He knew that the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior, but you've kept the fine wine until now. What, what, what is happening here? It's something about the way that, that, that this is worded that I think is super precious. Because what you're seeing is, look, before, when you were doing a wedding, it made perfect sense. You would put out the good stuff first, and then people's, uh, people's palates are like so dull by that point, they're not even going to notice the, 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 the junk stuff that's coming out later. At that point, they're just throwing things down the gullet, and they don't really care. <laughs> but, it, but here, the, the, the head waiter is going, hmm, this is interesting. Like, typically, it works this way, right? Traditionally, this is how we've always done things. But you're doing something new. So somehow, this wine that I thought we already had the good stuff, now all of a sudden, y'all know that, like, you know, you go to certain places, people will be like, have a, have a party at a club and, or, or be at some place, and uh, uh, you, they, they want, like, the really, really high-end alcohol, the top-shelf stuff. Some of y'all going to be judging me. Don't judge me. I'm just telling you that's what they do. And so you've got like this top shelf stuff. The top shelf stuff is the super, super expensive stuff. And Jesus comes in, they're like, you know, usually you save the top shelf stuff for the, for the beginning, but we, I haven't had anything this powerful. I haven't had anything this good. It, this is, because you realize, how would he have known that this was really high quality wine? Because of the smoothness and the potency. So if you think it was just non-fermented juice, you're missing something. Ain't no juice that good. I ain't never had grape juice this good. Like, it doesn't normally work that way. So, so, so it's interesting. What, what is he showing you here? If anything, Jesus is showing you that even your best efforts at bringing yourself the greatest joy, my joy is always greater. My joy is always more sustaining. It's a joy that you never have to go elsewhere to look for again. Once you've drank from this, you'll never drink from anything else again. This is what he's saying. He's saying you'll never need another cistern when I'm at the party. This is what you see. So when you look at this, the, the, the disciples had to watch all of this. They saw this, and they're going, first of all, they're the ones that's changing this new water. They're seeing the water change, and they believed. What is this saying more than anything else? And I'm closing. Here's the thing. What Jesus does, he, bring, he changes our relationships, and he makes them new. The things that need to be changed, he changes them. The things that need to be cut out, he cuts them out. 
The things about our religion, how we think we need to believe, think certain things that have been traditional. Certain things in tradition are great. I'm all for it. But y'all know sometimes tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. And we need to question. Because tradition isn't bad as long as it's not being exalted above the heart of God. So if there are certain things that traditionally worked for a certain time and it didn't bypass certain aspects, of it, that's fine. But right now it might. And so we need to ask that question that Jesus says, all the things that are still of me, I'm for and I will renew. The traditions that don't work, I'm cutting them out. Aspects that you thought brought you closer to God, you know better, you do better. I'm here now, I'm showing you something new and I'm changing it. So we've got a new relationship. We've got a new religion. And then you see all the ways that Jesus, this is just a little foretaste. When you get in relationship with Jesus, he continually shows and reveals himself to you. And listen, when I say reveal, I'm not talking in the sense that I think some people talk now, where it's like new revelation in addition to God's word. Scripture says everything we need for life and godliness is right here. We're not talking about God saying something new he's never said before. Don't buy that. God's never going to contradict what he's already said and he's already told you. My heart, the full counsel of who I am is right here. But there are things in here that you don't know and he's going to reveal more of that to you. There are things about his nature that even though it's in the text, the reason why we have to be reminded over and over again is because we forget, we overlook, or we just don't know. And so it is a new revelation to all of us. When you go, you ever been through, you read the scripture and you're going, oh my goodness, I never knew that was there. I never knew that was true. I didn't know that was true of me. I didn't know that was true of God. I had no idea that's in there. See, God is always in the business of revealing himself to us. And every time we're walking with him, you'll see, and you know, how he, you know how he reveals himself to you? This is, this is super uncomfortable, but let me tell you. He often reveals himself to us in really hard conflicts. He often reveals himself to us when things get tough. He often reveals himself to us when we're in the middle of major disagreements or pain or hurt or suffering. That's oftentimes when he shows up. And in a lot of ways, he does it by showing you more about who you are and who you aren't. Mm -hmm. Then he shows up and miraculously reveals. You realize that there are people, they've been through really hard things, and they're like, I know so much more about who God is right now. I know so much about where, here's the other thing, I know so much about my own brokenness. It's always a sign of maturity when you're aware of your own brokenness. See, that is, sometimes we're looking for a revelation from God and we're just looking for it in the good. We're looking for a great, grandiose thing to go, yes, God, you showed up, you did that good thing for me, which we can pray for, and he does it. Bless God. But as I read the scriptures, more often than not, you see God revealing himself more and more in the times of real hard tragedy, the hard, hard times, real conflict. So as we go into this new year, the question that I have for us is, are we prepared when we say I want something new? Do we? What things, what old things are we holding to that maybe we need to let go of? What old things are we holding to that maybe God is changing and we need to be able to embrace that and accept that? What things in your life, in my life, in our lives are going, Lord, I know that maybe these weren't even bad things. These old things I was holding to, they were good, but they've outlived their usefulness. And there's something new that I need you to do in me. There's something new I need you to reveal to me. There's something new about your word I need to start believing. In other words, God, I, I, I want to be able to have my relationships renewed. There, right now, for all of us, there are going to be relationships that we have in our lives that either really, truly need to be renewed. 
And we need to lean into those relationships, even the hard ones. We need to lean in and go, Lord, if you're the one that makes all things new, I'm spent. I can't do anything else to fix this, but only you can. And so I'm just going to, the only thing I can do is trust that you are able to fix this. I'm going to lean in with my humility and wait for you to fix this. Lord, there are things in my, the way that I believe in my religion, there are things, the ways that I believe about how I know God that that, that need to change. And so, Lord, I, I need you to show more of yourself to me so that I'm not believing in the wrong things to save me. God, there's a lot of wine I keep drinking that's not satisfying. Give me the ability to set that aside and say out with the old and with the new. May 2020 be a year that God reveals himself to us in our joy and in our brokenness so that in 2020, like every year, we live more and more like him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that even in the midst of the ways that we seek after things that don't ultimately fulfill Temporarily they do, and we think we can hold it up. We can keep pursuing and keep running and keep digging and keep finding that same thing. And when it fails to satisfy, we are despondent, we are broken, we are sad, we are scared. And yet you still love us. You continue to make all things new. You make us new. You make the way we think new. You make the way we feel new. God, ultimately, we aren't able to make new things. We just recycle ugly, dead, bad things. And we call them good. We'll have a good thing and then eventually it'll turn bad and we still hold it. God, we need you to make new fruit and not the spoiled ones we keep tossing back and forth. So God, as we go into this new year, God, will you continually make us new? Give us a new view of you. Lord, we say it all the time and it can become cliche. God, we need your vision. We need your ears. We need to hear the things that you say. God, we need to feel the things that you feel. God, as we move into this new year and as it has been prayed earlier today, as we move into a new election cycle, God, we need you. Father, we need to be able to see your heart. We need to be able to speak with your words. We need to be able to engage each other in a way that says that we love you and you are the ultimate Lord of our lives despite what we may feel or think. So God, as we go in, I pray that you indeed would change. Do the work that you promised to do, to continually change us. God, change our relationships, change our religion, and reveal yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.